All right, joining us today is Mike Kostetler. Mike is a passionate advocate for remote work, as well as a diligent student of work operations, open source software, especially JavaScript, and all things modern web. He currently brings 20 plus years of technology experience to work each day as Senior Director of Engineering at Cars.com, a leading two-sided digital marketplace in the automotive industry. Mike is also a published author, co-authoring the jQuery Cookbook, which you can find via O'Reilly and your neighborhood or favorite bookstore. Mike, thanks for joining us. A pleasure to have you here today. Yeah, happy to be here. Happy to be here. Excellent. So... You have a huge history in the open source community, specifically around JavaScript and jQuery. Yes. From the beginning of that. What, that's what, 10 plus years in that? Yeah, we're going on 12, 13 years now. Wow, okay, so that's a lot of time. There's been a lot of development in that entire sector. What's happening in the community right now, the JavaScript community as a whole, and then the open source community, sort of larger level, what's happening that people should really be paying attention to? It's JavaScript and front-end web development is constantly evolving and it's a very kind of fractured space at the moment. What you're seeing is the emergence of a couple of big trends. First, a lot of software engineers are beginning to, and, and organizations are beginning to realize how difficult it is to build and maintain a healthy JavaScript code base. So when you build a major web application, I've not heard any story of anybody who's really gotten it right yet. It's very difficult when you start scaling a team over again, 20, 30 engineers, it, it just gets messy quickly. A lot of that's to due to the nature of JavaScript, the language itself. Okay. Uh, if you've heard about the history of it, it was conceived in three weeks by Brendan Eich in the late nineties. And he, he jokes, he's been paying for the sins of that ever since. Well, and it yet, took, what, seven days for the world, three yeah, exactly. weeks for JavaScript, it's fine. Um, so since then, you know, it's it's taken over. JavaScript is now, if not the most popular, one of top two most popular programming languages out there right now. And every software engineer probably has had some exposure to it. And it runs, because of the explosion of the internet, a lot of our consumer interactions today. So you see kind of the, the, this messy history. Going forward, there's a lot of people trying to fix JavaScript. That turns out to be a really difficult problem. And well, JavaScript isn't one thing either. No, Which it's makes not. it even, it's like exponentially difficult because if you solve at the core, everything built on top of it Everything now built on shifts. top of it needs to change and evolve as well. There's been a lot of attempts in the past. CoffeeScript came out of the Rails world. Google's Dart language mm -hmm. is still around. Uh, the big one now is TypeScript, which came out of Microsoft. A lot of, and TypeScript adds some um, kind of a layer of functionality on top of JavaScript that makes it easier to work in larger teams, makes the language and, and offers the ability to add types to the language. So more at an enterprise level than an individual developer level is sort of the focus of that. Individual developers can use it as well. And one of the reasons TypeScript has succeeded where others have failed is that it is a language, again, kind of on top of JavaScript. So TypeScript is valid JavaScript and they didn't deviate too far from the underlying language itself like a CoffeeScript did. So they've done well and Microsoft's tooling engine and, and kind of 
uh, they've put their shoulder behind it as an organization. So there's first class shoulder. support. It's a very big shoulder. First class support in Visual Studio Code. Uh, they're doing a lot of training and evangelism around TypeScript. There's other languages and, and kind of um, dialects emerging as well. Reason ML is, has come out of Facebook uh, as a, kind of in the similar vein by the creator of React. Um, but, you know, JavaScript is, it's just a, it's it kind of just an interesting and messy place. It sounds that, or it sounds like there's so many opportunities to solve so many problems. Yeah. And each variance starts to attract talent, attention, and yes. really go after one aspect of the problem. And then the next problem occurs. And it, I don't want to say it bifurcates because it doesn't really do that. It doesn't fork. Just it evolves there's different, different pockets way. like that's there's a, different pockets of way. people who follow maybe a, a different thread and that's again the best way to think about it javascript itself has evolved to the place where it's this entire ecosystem that ecosystem and it falls different labels too you could call it javascript you can call it the web platform you can call it the modern web there's different pockets of how you stitch all of these pieces together to eventually build your solution this is another interesting aspect that's sort of driven this fragmentation too. the language itself and the tools evolved and they made it very, very easy that the low barrier of entry for people to not only build a solution to one of these small problems, but then due to the package system and the um, node package manager and, and the explosion of Node.js, which is again, kind of a pocket of the JavaScript world, you have a lot of uh, an explosion of ideas to solve these problems because say one solution emerges for templating it's immediately followed by six others and then the market kind of decides what gets traction um problem exists where three or four things get traction and there's enough weight or enough usage behind it that you know again you get all these sort of fractures they all can work together and so it's not a fork as you say but just then it makes the barrier to entry exponentially more difficult for anybody getting into it or an organization trying to standardize how they build their JavaScript. And that was a question solution. I was going to ask is that if you have a set of individuals who have varying skills and varying interests, and yep. sometimes those skills and interests are going to align and other times they're going to be slightly separated. So they're going to pursue them uh, at a different pace and yep. with a different level of enthusiasm. Inside of an organization, typically like a small, so let's say an SMB or sort of a mid-market enterprise, yep. that kind of sub five billion range. How do organizations manage that? Because on one side, you yeah. want to have the right tools and the right technology and the right yeah. empowerment for your team because you want to attract and you want to retain that talent. Yeah. But you also then need to be able to deliver consistently. And the myth of CICD solving everything isn't not real, realistic. but there's elements of all of these different capabilities and requirements and tools and technologies and languages that all play in there. So as an organization, how do you approach all of these? How do you approach the embedded skill set and the embedded um, interest, if you will, or proclivity towards a particular language or towards a particular pocket yeah. in the JavaScript In the front world? end world, it's exponentially more difficult than let's say choosing a backend language. Okay. Um, when choosing Java, for instance, there's a, you know, a couple of big threads you can follow in the JavaScript world, there's hundreds and you often need to pick a subset of 20 of those hundred rather than one out of five. 
So again, it, it makes the variations available more difficult. And then you need a, a really important standards and practices process where the community of engineers govern themselves. It's too much overhead to ask an engineering organization to sort of have a, let's say a policy making arm, deciding what the creative engineers that you spend a lot of money hiring can or cannot do. They're not a group that likes rules. So you need them to understand and, and figure out how they can work together and collaboratively build something that's sustainable. Well, how, how does that get aligned in an organization like cars? You have a lot of talent, you have yep. a very big and diverse market that you're serving. How do you approach that? How do you say, okay, smart, intelligent people, creative people go? what guidelines, what sort of swim lanes do you put in place and how is that managed? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because some of the turnover we've had in the last three years have, have actually made that a, a difficult problem. We rebuilt on something that was essentially a variant of Angular 1 and a custom node framework that we're still dealing with. Then we moved and we have a couple of pages built in React and now we're exploring even the next generation of, of what that looks like. In our, there's a lot of reasons of why we have that at CARS, but at the end of the day, how you lead through that is you need engineers who or understand the pros and cons. A lot of the senior engineers these days should be comfortable working in both Angular, React, and anything new. So you're not, you shouldn't first start in your kind of hiring. You don't want to pigeonhole what you're hiring for is the first point. Second is live and let live. And you know, if something <laughs> works and it reach, it, it kind of uh, meets your operational metrics of site speed and complexity, like my thing is always work with the software that you have. There's a lot of uh, engineers love to rebuild things. Sure. And don't jump to necessarily rebuilding it. And unless there's a really good case, which again, we're in kind of a rebuild at cars, um, but there's, that's for business reasons, not technology reasons. So the technology case- But that sounds like rebuild. a modular rebuild though. It is. And based upon the nature, not only of the application, which does require the upfront planning, but the nature of the business going forward is that it is modular. Everything becomes more modular. Yeah. So the ability to introduce new technologies, new capabilities is directly in line with what you want to accomplish in the business. Yes. And then as long as there is that commonality and yeah. that overarching structure, you can start to layer those all in, in a relatively sane manner. Yeah, and that's where that's why it's more of a business-driven decision rather than a technology-driven decision to, to kind of make these framework changes. And then going forward, it's again important to just maintain that consistency. Um, we've, we've dealt with a lot, but at the end of the day, it's a website and the, the basic technologies that have served us from the mid-90s when the web was really kind of came uh, to the forefront versus now they've evolved a little bit, but the it's a website. And so that's always <laughs> important to sort of keep in mind. Right. You can make it really, really fancy under the hood, but at the end of the day, you're shipping HTML, CSS, and a little bit of JavaScript. You mentioned the web is, a website is a website, and it's a lot of similar technologies and capabilities and concepts that have existed for quite a while but there's a lot of different directions you can push it and a lot of directions people want to push it. As you evolve your product and service offering in any organization, how do you, overseeing a development team, manage that? How do you balance 
what is innovation for innovation's sake as opposed to innovation for revenue's sake because those are very different constituents that yep. you're battling with. How do you normalize all of that and come to the decisions that do ultimately drive everything forward, the business and yeah. the people? So the first thing is it's definitely a team effort. So it's those trade-offs are things that need to be made with a lot of input. There, in my position, we do have a lot of leverage because we're the ones touching the code at the end of the day. Okay. And yes, things can come through a, a sustainable process. You can communicate all day long. A developer <laughs> flips a switch on something and you know a lot of hard fought gains can go out the window. So we do have, uh, we're in an area of impact on okay. business metrics versus uh, you know tech innovation and things like that. The, but there's a couple of other lines that we do draw on the engineering side. And the first is, um, it, we all keep the customer in mind. And so it's about creating a good experience underneath that umbrella of keeping a good experience. That experience is new product development, new innovation, but it's also maintaining what we have. But that's a big guiding light because it the is customer a big experience light. is a measurable tangible asset in at times yes for well depending upon the nature of the application and yep. the business but in many instances it can be so that driving force or that objective is very clear yep. it's something everybody can understand and so with when it comes to just we work with our product partners with our design partners and other stakeholders in the business to take right. their ideas and translate them into things that manifest themselves on the website but it's also really in our wheelhouse and responsibility to make sure that we maintain operational metrics. And you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the technology choices that we make. Yes, we consult a little bit, but those really are, are engineering's choices to make, but they drastically impact how we're able to deliver the business value. Now, so how there's, there's how are those of, metrics shared? Because yeah. you're talking about code metrics, which is lines of code committed, the quality of code, how many um, deployments can be made, the frequency, mm -hmm. the quality, as opposed to completely different business metrics. And in many organizations, those are oil and water. And different groups don't understand or don't have any connection to what that means. How, how, what's your view in sort of the best practice or the way to approach that inside of an organization so yeah. people do understand it is dual-sided or bi-directional and it's only when those are connected or you recognize they truly are the same you know yep. the different sides of the same coin that you can get to what you want to achieve so again i'm i'm a big believer in that yes we often fall prey to the maybe false challenge of an engineer doesn't understand or maybe doesn't care about business metrics and vice versa i think that's a question of you really have to work to bridge those gaps but when you do the effort is worth it so case in point site speed is a big component of what we do at cars.com because that drastically impacts our organic seo traction mm -hmm. made a lot of progress there lately because site speed and that's been a contributor there's been a lot of other contributors but that's been one of them that we've had a measurable impact along the way and we've done a lot of work to bridge that gap in both directions. First, on doing a business-focused write-up to help explain to our stakeholders in the business that 
you, do, you don't have carte blanche in putting anything on the website because everything that we do put on there has a speed impact mm -hmm. and really helping bring that to the forefront of the conversation. Interesting point I'll come back to there because you don't just take everything off. You need to have a, a kind of an intelligent way to, to measure and test your hypothesis on, right. on how much sites, how valuable site speed is. But then on the flip side, it's important for the engineers to know that site speed and it's one, not a direct correlation. Faster website does not equal more revenue all the time, even though they but would love to really have. It. Correct. So I, and, and not only a slow one, but it's the order in which maybe a JavaScript tag gets put on the page can cause contention for a subset of browsers that we lose a small cohort of our users. Mm. So it's really sort of interesting and, and you need that the engineering creativity and horse brain horsepower to get to the bottom of those problems. Sure. Um, so really doing a lot of work to make that communication and understanding bi-directional, as you said, is I think a real driver to unlock a lot of that creativity to move the entire business forward. But it's also, you got to challenge the assumptions that each side kind of holds. We hit this when we did, we, we set up a tag poners channel. There's a couple of engineers. We wanted to get rid of as many tags off the site as possible. Some of them had revenue attached, but we, so we built a, a way to measure the speed impact and then see if there was revenue, like a revenue offset because okay we did develop a model that SEO, additional organic SEO did equate to certain dollars for us. So we built that model and then you can say, well, if this tag is worth X amount of dollars and we speed it up, can we, can we offset that? We follow a test and learn methodology inside cars. And so there's a lot of appetite to test things, uh, even if they could be considered harmful if you make a good case. So we made a case to run a test to take certain tags off. And the interesting thing that happened is that we weren't so much fighting a speed problem, but a CPU contention problem, which brings us back mm -hmm. to the way, you know, at the end of the day, it's a website. You load up too much JavaScript and the CPU browser threads are, are single threaded or they, they use a, a single core, CPU core, so they'll fight with one another. And, and everybody suffers. Everybody suffers when you put too much on there. So engineering ended up reordering how the tags would fire and where they would come in at and thus got our speed win and the business got to keep the majority of their revenue win. How hard is it to get the business and the developer, the business and the technology side on the same page, understanding those objectives? Because you made a really interesting point a few moments ago and you said that everybody wants to do what's right for the business. Yeah. Nobody is knowingly or willingly going in and saying, I bet I can mess this up. What they're doing is they're trying to say, I know I can do this. I know we can achieve these goals, but how do you get and get and keep everybody on the same page? Yeah. Cause that seems to be a universal challenge for organizations of all sizes is that the business doesn't understand what technology yeah. needs to do and technology doesn't understand what the business needs to do. But in reality, they do, they might just not have the time to be able to do it. So how do you sort of balance that or what do you see as a way to help yeah, keep them so aligned? This is maybe harsh, but that, to me that's laziness in an organization, especially like ours. I consider that one of my key jobs of the leadership of helping to both sit and understand, take the time to listen to each side 
and then bring it together. Like the magic happens and, you know, we talk, we'll talk about work in a little bit, but the magic happens when you bring disparate views and teams and kind of find those solutions. They don't always exist. You're not going to get a home run every time, but the work to do that is worth it. And it's some of the most critical work in these organizations. And that it's a different way of working for a lot of organizations. How do you, how do you introduce that to an organization? Because in many worlds, it's, I don't want to say you throw it over the fence, but there's very much a not in my backyard mentality where, yeah, I know it's there. I know things are happening, but I just don't have time. Yeah. I don't care right now at the point in time I will but that point in time never comes. I think the first question you have to ask is how much do I care about this issue? So again, go back to this tag poners group. Like I was, we had a stated mission in the engineering side to get rid of as many tags as possible because it was messing up our creative endeavor, right? So there was a lot of ownership on this particular piece. And I challenged the team, don't just accept the the pat answer of no we don't have any influence over this that's incorrect and it's if that's what they think then it's really on them and i was their skip level manager at the time um like I, yeah come up with ideas and if you don't have what you need then come to me and get some help but that's it's not acceptable that you're just saying no we can't influence this then you need to go find a new job because that's not the environment that we have here. And it, yeah, it may be harsh, but again, that's why I call it laziness. Um, if we're overworked to the point that, or that engineer is overworked to the point that they don't have the ability to go solve what they do to be a really critical problem. And again, it's, you know, subject to my oversight and, and judgment as their leader to no, let this one go. Find another thing to really sink your teeth into. Find another battle to fight. Okay. Um, and, you know, realize that you're going to have to compromise on something. Because, right. yeah, you're taking one side of the, the, uh, the coin on this. But in my experience, really focusing in on the character and, and taking the ownership of each of these problems. If you care about it enough, you'll find a way to solve it. We had another one where... A week and a half ago, um, we were talking about introducing some ad technology that I did not consider to be a good thing for the business. There was revenue attached to it. Uh, and, and thankfully, this was one that was kind of in my purview that uh, I just didn't fundamentally disagreed with for our consumers. And we were able to come together with the group proposing it who had very valid and good reasons to propose sure. it. Um, and work with them to come up with a compromise. So I, I think, you know, like you said, when people are keeping the best interests of the business in mind and you always keep that as your North Star and you take ownership of, of the problem and really seek to find a good compromise, uh, very rarely do you run into brick walls, but a lot of people just aren't willing to do that. We were talking about work and the nature of the development teams and their intersection with the business and achieving what is ultimately in the best interest of the business because it's in the best interest of everybody. And you mentioned something very interesting. You said that you get together with the different stakeholders and you meet and you talk through this and you find compromise. How has remote work and the fact that the development team that you want, the development team that you need for the company to be successful is never walking through the same door at the same time? They're 
scattered across the country. They're scattered across the world. You're not only talking about time zones, you're talking yeah. about languages, you're talking about different cultures, everything. How do you manage that? How does that play into <laughs> what comes together to yep. make it successful? So the, the first important thing is to understand the definition of remote work. I think a lot, as you were saying, there's a lot of different types of it. And the latest, one of the later studies that I've seen and the, you know, my kind of go-to for that definition is there was a study at a, a really large organization, think a floor of cubicles that just spanned a couple hundred yards in each direction. They studied how often any individual member of a cubicle would interact with other people around them and what the distance was to where their interactions broke down, okay. AKA maybe in a remote work situation. Okay. The number that they came back with was 30 feet. So two people sitting in the same office, 30 feet away from each other. And that's it. And that's it. So when you think about that, we are all in primarily a remote work situation. And the first thing you have to do when you're in that situation is really define a person's role. What value are they creating for, to the business and, and what are they doing? How they then deliver the value out of that role so software engineer creates value by taking business requirements, turning them into code, and then shipping that code. Mm -hmm. And setting that up and really equipping employees at all levels with that information. The next step is teaching them how to do that, both to deliver the value, but then to communicate that they delivered the value. Two separate, but two sides of the same coin. Right, right. And then the last part of that and notice none of this so far has been mandated or indicated that they need to be physically present any, anywhere mm -hmm. but the last critical piece of that is when you're working with a team you have to learn how to project your presence into a place where you can collaborate with that team okay. you can do that over distance you can do that with a lot of different tools you can do it with a text message you can do it with slack you can do it with a zoom call but you have to at certain points in time, go from asynchronous type work environment to a synchronous type work environment. What's the frequency of that that is really required for people to truly stay engaged? Because it seems that the piece of the synchronous capability of the tools that are out there is the biggest blessing and the biggest curse. Yeah. Because if you're online and you have some sense of presence, you can be completely bombarded, at which point you need it to be turned off. But you so, also need to be connected at the same time right. you need it turned off. And that's a really yep. slippery slope. So, I mean, there's a lot of great information out there right now about, you know, how to craft your notification settings or the maker versus manager schedule and how it impacts your creative ability to be distracted. Um, and there's you know, another great book out recently called Indistractable and how all these distractions impact our brains. In my experience, it really comes down to what do you need to create value in the team that you're on? So in my world, I would say that I'm a member of three or four different teams at work. I have my immediate team, my, the, the, my reporting structure, the people that report to me. I have teams underneath each of those. So I have a platform team and a software engineering team. I need to keep in touch with the entire org two or three levels below. 
I have my peers who I need to work with. I have a wider peer group of design and product that we have to deliver something. So you can, you can come up with these spheres of influence where you do need to be engaged. Okay. From there, then you can work through how that team dynamic is going to go. And a lot of organizations never really take the time to define this. Well, so I was just going to say, but you're talking about the definition of something. Expectations management. It requires effort. It requires the establishment of expectations. And it requires that everyone truly come to the table to put forth the effort in order for that collaboration yes. to occur. Because it's too easy to just say, oh, that person's more than 30 feet away, or I can't see if they're there. Yep. You know, I'm looking, they're not over on the other side of the floor, I'm out. Yep. I'll just deal without it. That's a that's a really different beast. Yeah, to me, that's that's what it comes down to. You'll hear a lot of advice in the tactics of remote work, but I think where I see people missing the point is underlying that one, humans are humans, so they need some sort of interaction. Teams are teams, and there's a lot of teams that work across geographic boundaries that don't need to be in the same office, or there's teams that work in the same office that don't talk to each other every day. I mean, it, there's a lot of information on that. It's all the same thing, just remixed a little bit. And if you take the time to define those expectations, I think the team can operate at a higher level. How easy is it to find people that understand that or want to be a part of that? Very instead few of people being, do right now. Because <laughs> it seems that people want to have a very clear objective, a very clear goal, and then they want to go and they want to put their fingers on the keyboard yep. or pen in hand or whatever it is and execute that, see the result of it, and then move on to what the next one is. But that comes at a cost. It does. And that cost is that collaboration. How... How do you see that changing? You mentioned it's, it's very difficult. How do you see that changing? Is that something that is brought in with new people to an organization? Is it coaching and change from within the organization as a whole? Is it a change in strategy? Is this yeah. what becomes of digital transformation when it gets beyond things being cloudy? Yeah. Like it's the next level of that. I mean, these are all intertwined yeah. in some really weird way, but they're critical each in and of themselves, yeah. but now you gotta make it all so work. I, again, I think in any organization, and I'll put this under the label of digital transformation, digital transformation is really about culture transformation and remote work gets thrown into this, right? It's Because it's, why not? Yes, exactly. Um, interesting thing is that I think remote work is one of the more accurate definitions of what needs to happen because when you're co-located physically with somebody in an office less than 30 feet away, you often fall into bad habits, right? And the open office plans have facilitated a lot of bad habits, mm -hmm. but I think I am really in favor of a more of a bottom up approach. So, and this is, it comes back to leadership, a leader learning how to work with somebody to establish and help them really understand what's expected of them by the company what teams they're playing on, what roles they're playing, and then measure them against those expectations. Because we're all playing three or four, maybe five or six different roles in our organization at any given time. And that's, that's where it has to start. I've not seen any top-down type effort work. Uh, and it, it has to, again, be kind of bubble up from within. Cool thing is that there's a lot of great benefits to the employees when they learn these skills and they're skills that can be learned. I've taught several people to do it myself. Um, there's a lot of great benefits that come out of it. 
So there's two aspects of this, and it's a slight tangent, but they intersect here. And one is automation in the fact that automation really serves two purposes. One is it increases the success of repeatability yep. and the sort of hidden benefit, if you will, is that it creates documentation yep. and it creates process because if something is automated, then there's a way and other people can look at that. Yeah. So there's a concept of automation that plays in this. But then the second piece of it that I don't think really comes into the understanding of how an organization is managed. It is from how an application is delivered or developed. And that's mobility and the changes in attention span. Yep. Where today you have people who are focused on very quick hits. If they don't have something immediately, they're gone. And immediately used to mean a minute. I mean, if you think about it, immediately used to mean seven minutes, right? Mm -hmm. Cartoons, attention span, seven minutes. That went down even smaller and smaller and smaller. And yeah. now it's seconds where if you don't have it within seconds or subseconds, you're out and you're on to the next thing. Those are kind of competing components where the time and attention to document and automate and build is one thing, yet the ability to have everything instantaneously available, changing and evolving all in real time yep. to keep that attention span is another. So when you add the disparate nature of a team to that, how do you reconcile or how do you look at reconciling yeah. that in a way that delivers ultimately a bigger, better, faster, stronger experience for a customer? Yep. Because that's what matters. So I, again, it's, it's a important to get the definitions right automation within a digital transformation is the manifestation of the organization's shared learning. So they learned the best way to do something and then how they've automated it is conceivably their best way to go about any given process. Okay. And it's elevated to the point where it's worth it to do the work, to automate it, to make it repeatable. But then a depending on how, again, how the leadership works, you come at this question of automation in that you need to both, you need to continuously improve that process. Mm -hmm. And it takes human beings and creative energy and judgment of, okay, 99% of the time this worked, 1% it didn't, we need to build that 1% corner case into our automation, let's say a CICD pipeline or sure. something along those lines. And that way, we don't have to go relearn this lesson later on. That takes the kind of maybe short attention span of, okay, I need to do the work to automate this from a 1x task to a 10x task. Right. So I'm gonna take the time to, I ran into this really hairy corner case I need to audit, you know, build in the automation. I need to build in the check. I need to build in the corner case to our business process rather than it, you know, being something that's, oh man, I just want to move past this task. You're taking your knowledge and you're baking that into the machine of what the organization needs for the next decade. That's a, a much more powerful motivator Certainly. for employees. But that also has to be communicated. That's one of the big challenges. When you talk about bringing that knowledge and bringing the experience and closing out those corner cases into an organization that something is going to be there for 10 years or however long, that has to be understood by the individual. If they don't clearly recognize the connection with the work they're doing to that broader delivery, then they are going to fall back into that short attention span theater. If I need to solve this, I need to check it off my list and I need to go to whatever is next. 
how do from a developer and from a development management perspective, how do you keep those types of teams engaged, not only by the nature of the skill set that they have, but also yeah. by the nature of a very distributed location, because they are they are not all going to be within 30 feet of each other sure. in that room. So I, again, I, I think first you have to really help communicate the mission of what they're doing, the bigger vision. How frequent is that? A lot. Like that, again, that is one of the leader's primary jobs is to help communicate to the entire team of why they're there. Answer that question of why and what they're spending, you know, uh, work. You spend a lot of your time at work, mm -hmm. um, what they're spending their effort on. And again, that's that's really key. And I, to me, this a lot of this goes back to leadership and really understanding that it's the leader's job to help create that clarity and provide a, a, a mission, a direction of you know, why that person's spending their time. Um, so there. if you have that level of clarity that is communicated throughout an organization and you have extremely talented people who want to solve problems, what you're really getting to is the ability to flip the 80, 20 rule where 20% of the time is spent keeping the lights on and 80% of the time is spent innovating. That's what yep. a grail that everybody wants to get yes. to of, you know, innovation Friday. It's like, no, it's work Friday and it's innovation right. Monday through Thursday. But that also then comes with the level of experience and trust in the skills that each individual needs to develop and then continue to evolve. So how, from a developer perspective, do you entice the individuals or incent the individuals to pursue that growth? Because in many instances, as you said, people spend a lot of time at work and they don't want to extend that yeah. um, investment, that personal investment beyond the time they're already putting in there. But that skill development isn't necessarily going to occur between whatever yeah. AM and whatever PM that they're on the proverbial clock. Well, and even if they want to, they may have busy lives and there's a lot of challenges to, you know, asking to be able to do that outside of work. I think it's a, a misnomer that if somebody's not spending time in the evenings reading the latest industry news that they're not engaged. To me, that's, that's not a fair, equitable assumption. You do need to give them some of that time at work because them improving their skills helps the company innovate faster, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's part of that. Yes, uh, ongoing and training and education is a key part of any organizational development plan as well. Uh, as a leader, I think it comes down to helping facilitate a conversation with that employee of where where do their natural motivations and interests take them? Everybody has this, you know, direction of internal motivation. A lot of the time that internal motivation led them to the job that they're at. It's, it's but, it just, but it just becomes forgotten or disconnected because right. too much noise gets right. in the middle. So if as a leader, you can uncover where that internal motivation mm -hmm. comes from and tie it to the work that they're doing, it unlocks a lot of latent energy that each person okay. has because motivation's tied to sort of internal energy and, and going through that process. I, I've seen a lot of people come alive and give them the time at work. And oftentimes what happens if you do give them the time at work, it's five o'clock, they're into something really interesting. Either they'll stay late, they'll take it on the train, they'll go finish it in the evening. Um, if that fits into their lifestyle again. And I think you, you have to find that spark and the leader's role plays 
you know, the, the role a leader plays in finding that spark is critical with anybody that they're working with. So one last question I wanted to throw out to you today um, was on the topic of edge computing. And the reason I wanted to throw this out is it's something we had talked about recently um, on the train, as you mentioned. Yes. Um, the topics that just don't get accomplished during the day get brought to the train and then you dive in. Everywhere you go right now, everything is the edge. And edge is almost the new cloud. Yeah, It's kind of like the new black, but it's the new cloud. And it's shorter because cloud is like five letters, yeah. six letters, depending upon how. Looks better in a headline. It looks better in a headline. And it's like, you know, are you cloud? Are you clouds? And then edge is this nice little four letter word that fits in there. And everybody gravitates to that. How real is it? What are people doing with it today that isn't exploratory, that is yeah. really delivering value? Because I think there's a lot that yeah, you can read question. and see on the exploration side, but there's not a lot that you can find of true practical application. Yeah. And I don't want to use the word production because that has a very different connotation to it, but true practical application rather than this might work for something. Let's pursue yeah. it. So again, definitions are important. Um, go back to the nature of the internet. There's a client, there's a server. So start there. In my opinion, the, the most general definition of the edge is it moves the server closer to the client in geographic proximity and moves some of the compute power closer to the client. Now, why is this relevant? Uh, a couple of other big trends, 5G, so bandwidth opens up. And the um, what you can do and facilitate between the client and the server with a bigger pipe, especially a bigger wireless pipe, is pretty powerful. Um, think, you know, Google Stadia of video mm. games mm -hmm. uh, being beamed over a 5G connection. So you are able to take an Xbox quality game in terms of computational horsepower right to your phone because all the phone has to do is project an image and you have your controller right there as you're speeding down the train. Or there's other practical applications. Uh, let's say IoT sensors coming from a car or heavy machinery or a manufacturing process uh, and being able to, you know, the, the amount of sensor data coming off of cars or any of those manufacturing applications is enormous. Mm -hmm. Yes, we want to capture as much of it as possible, but being able to synthesize some of it at a, a server on the edge closer to the source of that sensor data and then get back a signal to wherever it needs to go um, and some aggregation there, I could see being a useful, a useful uh, application of this. At CARS, we've recently deployed a, uh, an edge compute solution through a company called Fly.io, based startup based here in Chicago, to put a, a programmable CDN in front of our site. Okay. Now, we still have a traditional CDN through one of the big providers. This programmable CDN sits behind that, and then we have our traditional infrastructure, data centers, and cloud compute. So it's, and, you know, the question was, well, why do you need it? Well, we've been able to take this generalized edge compute solution and replace some of our specialized uh, services behind the scenes via this, this generalized technology. 
Um, that's been really powerful for us from a cost savings perspective, oh, from a bandwidth savings perspective. We have enough bandwidth that 5% reduction is real money for right. us. And well, and then, you're not bouncing things back and forth. So there's right. latency benefits in addition to the cost benefits yep. as well. So the other really interesting that's emerged is thing that's emerged is that our, our CDN provider, we don't have a lot of visibility into what happens in their 200 plus pops that are at the edge with our users. You know, it's a, it's a big machine. Mm -hmm. And with the programmable edge and the metrics that we're able to see out of that, we're not able to catch errors faster, but our, the resiliency of our infrastructure has gone up because the edge is able to uh, help protect us against outages at origin. Um, and this is everything from, we serve our images to the edge to, you know, if a page goes down, we have ways to mitigate that at the edge and still provide a good user experience without losing some business metrics or things like that. There's a lot of creative things you can do. We've benefited significantly from the edge, uh, this edge compute platform. And I think we're just, the sky's the limit because it's a general compute. I, we can, whatever you want to run. Whatever you want to run. Um, now, the last little bit is also interesting in that with this edge compute solution, uh, you know, it has pops all over the world again. So our, our traffic runs through those pops and we were observing traffic moving all around the globe when cars.com's footprint and, and consumer footprint is North America or specifically the U S only. Mm -hmm. So, but again, by observing this, we were able to shift the traffic you know, decrease latency to our users and speed up the site, give them a better experience through the edge as well. Um, we were already doing a lot of that, so I don't want to attribute some of our success. Sure, but it's the next that. generation it, of that. Yeah, you're, you, you have better visibility into it. So it's, yeah, it's pretty interesting. How, so when you think about the talent that you need and the skills and the languages that are going to be used as things do move closer to the end user, How's that going to change? So the, the, from a technology and talent perspective, I think one of the big gaps that I've observed is just a fundamental understanding of how the internet works. A lot of engineers coming out of boot camps, they'll know JavaScript, but they don't know HTTP. Mm, um, okay. I'm okay. in the middle of teaching my 11 year old daughter, you know, some basics with computer science. And before she, I taught her HTML, the next, module that we pulled off of this website is how DNS works. How does HTTP work? To be effective at building something, uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in helping them understand how the network works and giving them a mental model mm -hmm. to be able to write code on top of it because the edge compute solutions force you to understand how that mental model works. That's number one. Second is state versus stateless mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. protocols. So edge compute right now for us is mostly a stateless right. compute environment and understanding the implications of that is really, really critical. It's not a big leap, um, but 
it's a key part of understanding how to make edge compute effective because you have the network connection going out both sides. Right. You know, it comes through, hits or it comes through edge compute, the request comes in out in one side, out the other, back to origin, and then on the return trip. And you can hold some state for that single request in the right. network connection, but not across your not entire Not all the state cloud. you really yes. want. All right, well, Mike, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to come in today and share yeah, no insights with us. We really appreciate you going all over the map in terms of technology, the people on the management side of it, and definitely want to identify a time and place to have you come back in and dive into the management strategy at a much, much deeper level. Because that's extremely exciting. And it's very interesting how important it's going to be for technology organizations yeah. as they continue to evolve. And most importantly, as the technology not only increases in complexity, but the ability to attract and retain key talent outpaces. Yes. Like the difficulty of that is going to outpace the innovation of the technology. For sure. For so sure. We'll definitely come back and dive in on that next time. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it.